Welcome to this special audio highlights program on multiple myeloma. This education symposium was held as a satellite to the 2012 Oncology Nursing Society Annual Congress. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. We asked nurse practitioners Ms. Beth Feynman and Ms. Kenna Miller to present and discuss patients from their practices, and we also solicited the viewpoints of two medical oncology investigators, Dr. Melissa Alsina and Dr. Rafael Fonseca. We also asked the audience to send in cases and questions by text message, and to begin, Ms. Miller presented a 56-year-old man who was diagnosed with multiple myeloma in 2009. He actually presented with leg pain, just normal activity, presented with leg pain, got worse and worse. He went to the emergency room and they discovered that he had a pathologic fracture of the right femur. The x-rays also revealed lytic lesions or holes in the bones, which made them suspicious of myeloma. He was a stage B disease, so that tells us that he had renal insufficiency, a creatinine over two. And this is actually how he presented. He walked in with leg pain and came out with a diagnosis of multiple myeloma. I'm curious, Beth, you know, what do you say to a patient who's just being diagnosed with multiple myeloma? Of course, it's hard to predict what's going to happen to a patient, but just more globally in terms of treatment, is it curable? Do you get into that kind of discussion with them? Absolutely, and that's one of the challenges that we as nurses face. One of the things I'd like to emphasize is that multiple myeloma is not curable, but it's highly treatable. The five-year survival has increased dramatically with novel agents and people that are exposed to these newer drugs, such as lenalidomide, bortezomib, and thalidomide, live longer. So I don't say it's the death sentence it used to be. We've transitioned to a chronic illness. So Kenna, what was this man's attitude towards information? Was he out there on the web trying to find out about multiple myeloma or more just saying, just tell me what I need to do? He was very overwhelmed by the diagnosis. He did his reading and his surfing on the internet and it terrified him more. He was very scared when he first came to us at a tertiary center. So Melissa, this brings up the first topic we wanted to get into which is where are we today in terms of transplant for myeloma? In the past, this has kind of been standard in a younger patient that we think could tolerate a transplant. Is that still the case, or is it also okay to maybe just collect cells and hold off on transplant? Yeah. Autologous transplant remains standard of care in myeloma. The studies that have been done using novel drugs followed by transplant suggest that that is the way to go, that those patients get upgrade of their responses and better progression-free survivals. Raphael? I'm actually quite biased in favor of transplant being one of the key elements of good control for disease control, so I actually support that as one of the main treatment modalities. So one of the things we want to get into today, and we got into this morning with breast cancer, is you know, kind of patient education. And what do you actually say to patients? And Beth, when you see a young patient like this man in his early 50s, all of a sudden he's got a fractured femur, he's trying to sort of conceptualize it, now he's got to deal with multiple myeloma, and you're saying, you know, we're hoping we can get you to a transplant in a few months. What do you tell them to expect from the transplant in terms of what it's going to be like for them? Well, we could sit here and debate as to whether or not an upfront transplant is an issue, but let's assume that this individual is going to transplant. I try to get their affairs in order and tell them realistically, you're going to be tired and fatigue is the biggest side effect of transplant that's really going to last a good six months. 
And, you know, I guess this issue of transplant can, uh, obviously it must be very debatable and controversial because there is a major trial out there right now which is actually randomizing patients to either get a transplant or hold off on it and then get a transplant with progressive disease. Kenna, can you talk a little bit again about this issue of where the decision falls, you know, outside of protocol setting in your own practice? It's a discussion between physician and the patient. What are your needs? How does your disease present? And how can we best treat your disease? And you lay out all the options. You can be treated on uh, upfront clinical trial. You can be treated with standard of care. Anyone who would ever be eligible for transplant, we always encourage them to at least stem cell collect when they have the lowest measurable disease. And then, does it work for your life as a patient? Does it work for you now? Does it work for you in the future? We had a patient that was due to retire from the state. He didn't feel that he could do a transplant up front. We stem cell collected him. When he retired, then he went on to the transplant. So. It's very individualized for the patient. It is still a standard, and it should always be in your mix if patients are eligible. So we kind of want to get into the issue of the treatment that these patients will receive initially, whether they're going to get a transplant or not. We're going to try to reduce the tumor burden. And Melissa, you know, one of the questions is two versus three drugs up front. There are regimens that, you know, are a little bit more intense that you can give, or you can use just a couple of drugs, but just sort of taking a step back, how important is it if you know you're going to move the patient forward to a transplant to, you know, maximize the tumor response before they go to the transplant? Well, it's very important because it has been shown in several studies that patients that go to transplant with disease control, either in a very good partial response or complete response, are going to do better. So we definitely want to get the best control possible. And even though there have not been randomized studies, two drugs versus three drugs, three drug regimens definitely show better quality responses, higher number of very good partial response, higher number of complete remissions. So in the absence of a clinical trial, I favor treating these patients with triple drug combinations uh, diagnosis. And actually, we got our first text. This is from Erico 315. I think it's somewhere in New York. What's the oldest patient you would consider for a transplant? I don't think there's a specific one, and the answer we always give is biologic age. So we have plenty of patients who are in their 70s who are out and about biking on the road or hiking who one, I guess, would consider a good transplant candidate. I have to admit, though, over the age of 75, it's hard to find a lot of individuals that we would like to push them through the process. So we're going to go through some of the specific regimens that patients are likely to receive both younger and older patients. For the younger patients, the three most common regimens, there were two, two drug regimens, RD and VD, lenalidomide dexamethasone, bortezomib dexamethasone, but also very commonly a three-drug regimen, RVD, which is the combination of all three of those. And then another one I know that Raphael and others have used a lot is so-called Cybor-D. And you can see in the older patients what the treatments are that are used in those. And I want to start out with Beth. One of the therapies that's frequently used in this situation, I think this man actually received it at one point, is lenalidomide and dexamethasone, low-dose dexamethasone. We put kind of what the patient goes through in terms of the schedule. What do you say to a patient to prepare them to begin RD? 
The issue is, is that we can use all of the drugs at one given time. Dr. Alcina had mentioned that she uses the three drugs up front, which would probably be bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone. Now, there was just actually a study at Moffitt, an abstract published that two drugs in sequential therapy might be just as good as the three-drug combination, and that's under debate. But at any rate, the side effects are mostly myelosuppression. As nurses, we need to cut the dose if there's renal insufficiency. However, it's an oral drug. They have to take the drug for it to work and refill it every month. What about thrombosis? And lenalidomide is one of the so-called IMIDs, immune modulatory drugs. What do we know about that in terms of increasing risk of thrombosis? Kano, do you want to address that and what we do about it? There's studies that have shown there's an increased incidence in thrombolic events with IMIDs in combination with steroids. You'll also see this with liposomal docosorubicin and steroids, if you can get liposomal docosorubicin. We prophylax, you can use baby aspirin, you can use full-dose aspirin, you can use low molecular rate heparin. If they have multiple risk factors, you may want to fully anticoagulate them with warfarin. That you will need to take into consideration. We always prophylax any of our patients that are on an IMID drug in combination with a steroid. Even if we use single-agent IMIDs, we also prophylax them. Raphael, what do you say to a patient, you know, and a patient says to you, you know, what's the chance I'm just going to kind of cruise through this? It's going to be like I'm taking a placebo or something. And sure. what's the chance I'm going to be you know, really having major problems you're going to have to deal with because of the treatment? Well, I always start by saying, first of all, it's easier for me to say that I'm the doctor than you, the patient, but in general, this is very well tolerated. The main side effects we'll see are dexamethasone, and I go through the neurocognitive, the high plus and the down that comes after that. I stress the anticoagulation, as Kenna was saying, and I do tell them of the very, very important aspect of that, because in the absence of prevention, about one in six patients will get a blood clot, so you really can't prevent that. We will monitor you. You might have some fatigue, but in general, through the front line, just knowing it's a fixed period of time, patients will do good. So another regimen, Melissa, this is bortezomib dexamethasone, and later on, we'll get into the issue of you know, using bortezomib weekly and using it subcutaneously. But the more classical VD that's been tested in clinical trials, again, what do you say to a patient to expect from that? Also, it's a patient that is usually very well tolerated. Probably the most common side effects are related to the GI tract. They can get nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, but that's usually very mild and controllable. Transient thrombocytopenia usually is not an issue because platelets drop while the patient is getting the drug and on the week off they recover. And then neuropathy is the big one and we need to advise the patients to be very careful and let us know immediately if they have any signs of neuropathy like numbness, tingling or pain. And the fourth thing would be all these patients should take prophylaxis for herpes zoster as bortezomib puts them at higher risk of developing herpes zoster. So Beth, you know, we were talking about neuropathy this morning with the taxanes and breast cancer. Really, there's so many drugs out there in oncology that lead to neuropathy. What have you seen in terms of the types of neuropathy with this VD regimen and bortezomib? And what do you tell patients to call you about? And what do you tell patients to wait until they come and then tell you about it? Absolutely, and I think it's important to impact that our average age of diagnosis is 70 years of age. And 20% of patients 
at diagnosis will have peripheral neuropathy. This regimen is very effective, but if they start having numbness and tingling, primarily it affects the feet, a sensory type of neuropathy, they need to report it. Once pain is involved, and we call it a grade one with pain, the dose has to be reduced. We can keep you on the regimen longer if we hold the dose or reduce the dose. So Raphael, would you agree that myeloma itself can cause neuropathy, and if that's the case, if you have a patient who's presenting with neuropathy, you know, why do you get it, first of all, with myeloma, and would you use a drug like bortezomib in a patient like that? You know, there's some interesting studies, primarily I think of the one of Paul Richardson that shows that you already show with a handicap, and it probably has to do with the binding of the monoclonal proteins on the myelin sheath, and that already starts with a background predisposition to peripheral neuropathy. Like Beth said, prevention is number one. I tell the patient, you tell us, I'm going to ask you, the nursing staff should ask you, and if we don't, tell us we're not doing a good job, because you have to do rapid dose adjustments for this continuation of therapy, if that's the case. So Ken, uh, Raphael mentioned Paul Richardson from Dana-Farber, and of course he has reported on the so-called RVD regimen. What have you seen, Kenna, in terms of side effects, toxicity, and efficacy of a triple regimen like RVD, and what do you say to a patient about to start it? The triple drug regimens, they're consistent with the side effect profile of each of the drugs. Dr. Fonseca discussed some of those before. The dexamethasone, you can have mood swings, and what I tell patients' spouses is when they're really moody, it's time to go out for a while and then come back. (laughs) And you have to warn them of that 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 could be possibly happening. With the lenalidomide, you will see counts diminish, that you will see pancytopenias. You can see muscle cramping with that. Check magnesium levels. They may be low. You can get muscle cramping from low magnesium levels. I learned a clinical pearl the other day. Pickle juice helps with cramping. So there's a lot of different things you can do. Tonic water you can use for muscle cramping. Pickle juice? Pickle juice. Pickle juice. What really upset me is they didn't tell me if it was sweet pickle juice or dill (laughs) pickle juice. It was very upsetting. We were talking talking about home remedies to prevent mucositis this morning with Everolimus, but pickle juice, I haven't heard that one before. So Raphael, when we looked at these, actually it was about 250 total cases, but then these three very common regimens, and we just basically said, and these were done individually with each case, you know, what happened to the patient? The majority of the patients actually responded to treatment. You know, for what it's worth, it wasn't a trial or anything. It looked like there were better responses when triple treatments were used. And then we also said, and I'm just kind of curious how these numbers match up really with your own personal experience. We said, well, how did things go you know, with the treatment course? And almost half of them, they went, according to the oncologist, very well, and minor problems in about another half. And so the majority of patients seem to tolerate and respond to these treatments. Is that a reality in your own practice? And do you think that's really what's going on right now with these new agents? You know, I think it's a reality, and again, with a caveat that we're sort of indirect judges of this, these numbers are actually remarkable. I'm surprised, actually, that RVD is doing a little bit better than VD. <laughs> As you mentioned, we actually use Cyborg-D quite a bit, and I think the numbers are very similar. But if you just, you know, you're doing a global analysis, you went to therapy, went well or fairly well, you have about 80% of patients there. I would say that's pretty good, actually, for almost any induction regimen for any cancer, for that matter. 
And, you know, just to put this in perspective, you know, where were things 10, 15 years ago before, you know, you have these two novel class of agents that have come out, Beth, on the scene. You know, the, we're kind of getting used to them being around now, but it wasn't that long ago where we didn't have IMIDs, we didn't have proteasome inhibitors, and myeloma wasn't quite as exciting, I guess, at that point. Right, and I've been taking care of myeloma patients since the mid to late 90s, and we didn't have all these options. And so while we welcome them, I think I mentioned to you briefly earlier the Mayo Clinic data that individuals who were exposed to these novel drugs are living longer. But now this creates an issue with survivorship. It's important to remind our patients to get their colon cancer, prostate cancer screenings, cardiovascular disease screenings because they are going to live a long time and you don't want them to have a stroke or a major health event while the myeloma is in remission. So we got another good text message, but we just want you to think about this. We'll deal with it in a little bit. This is from, I guess, locally, 503 Louisiana. What treatments are available for a myeloma patient age 33, wow, whose persistent disease in spite of two stem cell transplants, any investigational drugs? We'll just sort of tuck that one out there because I want to encourage you to submit more cases. But yes, there are some interesting things that we want to talk about here today. And then in terms of toxicity, I guess another thing we observed here that I wanted to ask you about, Kenna, is again the issue of neuropathy. And you know, it's pretty uncommon with the patients who don't get bortezomib, but not at all uncommon in the patients who do receive it. Now, one other issue we want to get into, and I'll start with Kenna, and this man has not yet been transplanted, and we're not going to get into all the things that have happened with him, but hopefully he'll get to a point where he can receive a transplant. And then one of the questions is going to be, should he receive treatment after the transplant? And Kenna, one of the things that's out on the table for people getting transplant is so-called maintenance treatment, in particular with the drug lenalidomide. Can you talk a little bit about what you've observed over the last couple of years in terms of the use of this strategy? And again, what do you say to a patient if this man gets to that point? What are you going to say to him about sort of the pros and cons? This is actually an excellent case study for this. Patient had rapidly progressing disease, needed multiple treatments. He was actually going on to stem cell collection and progressed again, and we had to treat him again. So if he goes on to stem cell transplant, he's an excellent candidate for someone on maintenance. So what you need to talk about and think about with these patients are the, the long-term side effects of this. There is some data with secondary malignancies that you need to bring up with these patients as well. But it's actually fairly well tolerated in the patients that I've seen that have been on the lenalidomide maintenance status post-transplant. So one other issue we want to just sort of mention in these younger patients in terms of the use of maintenance lenalidomide. And Raphael, maybe you can comment on this because there is the thinking that perhaps using longer term lenalidomide might increase the chance of a second cancer. We know myeloma patients seem to have a high incidence of that to start with. On the other hand, by continuing myeloma treatment, you see less progression from myeloma and actually less deaths. Sure. What's the thinking right now about this strategy? Well, I think the sort of emotional flair that came up when this was first reported has been quenched a little bit because people are still concerned, but it seems like the numbers far outweigh in the way of benefit versus risk. So we do discuss this with our patients. I do every time we start it. 
but with a very important description that in general, the benefits because of the control over disease, and so far what we have as indicators for survival favor the use of the drug versus not. Now, there's a lot of issues, that, I guess, beyond the scope of what we're doing today of, you know, how do you capture the data, the follow-up duration, the surveillance methods, et cetera, but it's something that should be discussed with patients. Can I make a comment, Dr. Love? I think it's important to remember, I actually had a patient in clinic this week, and I said to her, you know, we still don't know if it's the right idea to keep you on lenalidomide. She had been on it since 2005, lenalidomide and dexamethasone. She's now 53, and she says, you know, Beth, I have seen three grandbabies born, two of my kids graduated college and got married. I don't care. I will keep up on my health screening, but she's staying on the drug. I don't change my plan of care. I keep patients on it. I know that it's, like Dr. Fonseca mentioned, I know that it is an emotional flare for some, but we're still improving their progression-free survival. So can uh, that phenomenon of people wanting to stay on treatment, mm-hmm. you know, you see, we were talking about, again, this morning with breast cancer, hormonal therapy, et cetera. Can, uh, can you kind of explain in a way that I can understand it, which is seemingly very complex issues with so-called adverse cytogenetics? What are they and how do they change the way you might approach a patient? Typically, when they do bone marrow biopsy in a patient, all your hematologic malignancy patients will need a bone marrow biopsy. The bone marrow is the factory for all blood cells. And they will do cytogenetics on those samples. And there are certain cytogenetic risk factors that they find patients have a more aggressive disease with multiple myeloma. P17 is probably the most aggressive, aberrant cytogenetic risk factors. And you may want to tailor your medications based on that because you would anticipate that certain people will have more aggressive disease than not. And you would tailor your therapy with that in mind as well. So another issue, and I want to get Raphael to comment, that comes up in all patients with myeloma is the patient who presents with renal failure. Can you talk a little bit, Raphael, about why patients with myeloma have renal failure and how that changes the way you approach them. You know, it's very clear now, and it should be obvious, but we just have crystallized it. It is the free light chains that are circulating in the blood that damage the kidneys. They have direct toxicity on the proximal tubule, and they form the cast in the distal tubule, and that leads to renal failure. Practically speaking, I assume it's reversible, so I always give the benefit of the doubt to patients, unless we know it's been going on for a long time. But nuanced renal failure, we go aggressive. We usually introduce bortezomib early on, try to be aggressive with a supportive management of patients. And it's actually more often than not that you can actually help the patient, even if not fully back to normal, that you can get them into a more reasonable status. And what about the issue of bone-targeted therapy, Beth? You know, how do you approach that? I mean, most of these patients have a bone problem, but specifically have both bone problems and kidney mm-hmm. problems. Absolutely. So there are two different issues. If you have somebody with chronic kidney disease or chronic renal failure, they can have a secondary hyperparathyroidism. So that's separate from our myeloma bone disease. Myeloma makes chemicals called cytokines, which literally attack the bone and create these lesions. All patients, regardless of renal function, should be receiving bisphosphonates, but very carefully, once you have a decreased glomerular filtration rate, stage three renal disease, I'll give it a lot less often. Zoledronic acid can be given at dose reductions, as well as pomidronate, which is our two major drugs. And actually, in terms of choice of therapy, Melissa, when we asked investigators in myeloma, how do you treat patients who have renal failure, and everybody used some variation of bortezomib. Why is that? 
Yeah, it's essentially because lenalidomide is metabolizing the kidney, so when you have someone with kidney failure, it's hard to dose. And also, what Rafael mentioned before, I mean, if you see a patient that presents with kidney failure, the most important thing is to try to get disease control as quick as possible so that that patient doesn't go on dialysis. So you want to give a regimen that is not metabolizing the kidneys and that works very quick. So the preferred regimen is a bortezomib-based regimen, and I would agree that cytoxan, bortezomib, dexamethasone probably would be the regimen of choice for a patient presenting with renal failure. So we're going to go on to the second case in a second, but we're getting some good text questions in here I want to kind of throw by you. Here's one from 650 California. Beth, how do you manage a patient with myeloma and type 1 diabetes that requires steroids? Very carefully. (laughs) (laughs) So all my patients start on steroids. Raphael had mentioned early on, he talks about the neuropsychological mood swings that occur. Kenna says that she tells her patients to go out for a bit and then come back in when they're on steroids. But in terms of the metabolic, the diabetes associated with it, I think it's really important to link in with their primary care physician or the endocrinologist to help co-manage. If they're type 1 diabetic, they can still take the steroids, which are integral to helping the novel drugs work better. Raphael, any comments about managing patients with diabetes and myeloma who require steroids? Do you give them less steroids? Anything else you can do other than sort of watch them more carefully? You know, I think it depends on the situation. If it's just a slow progression, Mm -hmm. maybe you could even think about omitting steroids. So you could use something like Cybor without the D. There's some data about, for instance, thalidomide and bortezomib in combination. But if you have an acute situation, I say go ahead and use the steroids, try to do early tapering, and actually involve your colleagues. We do so when we have difficult cases from the endocrine department, so that proactively we're expecting the changes in the blood glucose levels. So Melissa, this one is another one from 916, which I think is California. You actually do transplant yourself, right, Melissa? Yes. So this is a question I want to hear your answer to. What are the overall survival statistics with transplant, and how do they vary in different age groups? Yeah, so essentially overall, right now, if you treat a newly diagnosed myeloma patient in general with novel therapies followed by transplant, we're getting overall survivals that could be from 7 to 10 years. And that's a very general number. Of course, myeloma is a very heterogeneous disease, and we have patients with very indolent disease that actually live longer than that, but we also have patients that present with very aggressive high-risk disease that represent a very big challenge. And the other part was related to the age. Yes, is there a difference in outcome in younger versus yeah, older Yeah, usually outcomes show that younger patients will live longer. However, still it's a challenge because, you know, younger patients like that patient that they talk in the 40s and their 50s, you know, even if they live 10 years, that's probably not adequate as opposed to someone that is diagnosed at 75, you know, that maybe someone that 10 years more be more adequate. I'll let you also handle this other one from 205, which I believe is somewhere in Alabama. Are some patients with multiple myeloma cured, Melissa? Uh, I was just I was just actually giving a talk at home in Puerto Rico and they actually challenged me with that question. They wanted me to say that we can cure myeloma. And I resist to say that. 
because I see patients that, you know, die from this disease. So I'm challenged every single day in my clinics with not having another treatment or, you know, have relapse disease and so on. So I would say the answer to that is no, we cannot cure myeloma. I like to look at people's faces. I'm seeing Raphael kind of like move around. What are you thinking, Raphael? Well, I think we should leave that for a larger debate, but I'm going to say yes. And the reason is... Um, and it was <laughs> By the way, you're very good with area codes. I'm very impressed. <laughs> there was a Spanish paper last year published in Blood where they looked at very long-term outcomes of patients who went predominantly a single autograft, and they'd show about 30% of patients in that series, which admittedly was small, about 300 patients, by other tumor standards, 30% of patients get into a CR of those 30% remaining CR at 20 years. So I think we're putting a very high bar upon ourselves. Unfortunately, that's only about 9% of patients, but we can, I think, sort of the door has been opened for the cure of myeloma. Okay, Kenny, here's another one from another 916 California one. Are you using magnesium or B vitamins to prevent or treat neuropathy, Kenna? Whenever I start patients on bortezomib, I start them on a vitamin B complex. As soon as they start on the B complex, we've actually had several patients that we sent to a local neurologist and he's put them on a cocktail of B vitamins and folic acid and you have to stay on them long term and we've actually done very well with rescinding a lot of the neuropathy. So, yeah, do we have evidence for that or is that just kind of like... That's anecdotal evidence on several of our patients that have been on it and have done well with it. Kathleen Colson out of Dama-Farber also did a very nice paper that discussed some of the interventions for peripheral neuropathy. A lot of it is homeopathic with B vitamins and preparations such as that, alpha-lipoic acid and that sort of thing. So, Raphael, again... Do you use B vitamins? You know, we have not, and I'll apologize to the audience, but a lot of what we do is not necessarily evidence-based because the field has been moving so fast. But what we have seen as a major change, and I think we're talking about it later, is the change in schedule of bortezomib. Early prevention, weekly administration, so we've done actually quite well, but everyone has their favorite way of trying to support patients. Yeah, I mean, this is really an interesting area of investigation. We're going to get into it in a minute, but Beth, you wanted to say something? So my area of research and my PhD is peripheral neuropathy prevention in myeloma patients, and actually two things, what I've found in working with my neurologist is vitamin B6 can cause toxicity and thus a small fiber neuropathy. So if your patients are on a B-complex and they have worsening neuropathy, we want to look and check the B6 level to make sure it's not toxic. The other thing You're is... You're saying it can cause... B vitamin can cause neuropathy. B6. 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 Vitamin B6. B12 deficiency can also cause it. So I treat people with an elevated methylmalonic acid and low to low normal B12 levels with the B vitamin. So that's pretty much my standard of care. Okay. And we'll talk later about, you know, how we're manipulating proteasome here, specifically bortezomib, to minimize the neuropathy and a new agent it looks like it has a lot less of any neuropathy, carfilzomib. But first, just to sort of get out on the table more, again, the basics of where we are, we want to shift over to the older patient where transplant is not going to be at consideration. And Beth actually has an 89-year-old man who I guess has been on treatment now for several years. And can you just, rather than go through each little piece of the case, maybe just provide a macro view First of all, what's his current status and what's his lifestyle like at 89? 
he actually golfs three times a week, and he has a younger wife who's 84, <laughs> and they're quite, they're quite active in their country club. This gentleman actually didn't require treatment at the beginning. Most of you are aware that you can have an abnormal overproduction of this pear protein, but not need treatment, and the risk is higher with the higher level. At any rate, he's doing very well. Unfortunately, he's gone from treatment to treatment, but that doesn't stop his overall performance status. is really good. So he has received various treatments that we've already been talking about, but just sort of globally, if you look at these last four years, how's the treatment and the disease itself actually affected him and his life? So he actually did develop some neuropathy. I wanted to mention that there's been a lot of research recently. Dr. Alcina had mentioned that when patients are losing their life, 10 years is great, but if you're 85 and you hear that you have 10 years, that's a little bit better maybe than if you're 35 and you have 10 years. In this gentleman, he became real informed going on the internet, going to the International Myeloma Foundation support groups. And when he started to have neuropathy symptoms, we decreased the dose. And now he's on just twice monthly bortezomib, it's every other week, with 20 milligrams of dex. So we're treating his disease, keeping him in remission, but assessing his frailty and taking that into consideration, which is reasonable. So before we get into more about this globally, again, I got some good text messages here. So Raphael, this is from Rhea in Hartford, Connecticut. Why the avoidance of NSAIDs? So NSAIDs have the risk of inducing renal failure in a patient that has an elevated serum-free light chain. I tell patients they're not absolutely contraindicated, but I would use Tylenol if they have some pain control needs, as well as opioids if we need to escalate. I do not like them to take ibuprofen in high doses just because of that risk, but particularly important if the patient has an elevated serum-free light chain. If the serum-free light chain is 50 or less milligrams per deciliter or 500 or less milligrams per liter, that risk is very low, but I still think it's a good practice to try to stay away from the NSAIDs. So our discussion of renal failure also prompted a couple of questions. And can a patients with myeloma and bisphosphonates, patients who have renal disease that's such that they're near dialysis, how do you handle bisphosphonates? This is from someone in Alabama. We do a much lower dose. The standard dose of pomidronate is 90. We would do a much lower dose in a higher volume of fluid and would do it less often. The ASCO guidelines for bisphosphonates are no longer than two years at a clip. Typically, if we control the disease, we'll take them off the bisphosphonates unless they have lytic lesions and bone compromise of the vertebra or weight-bearing bones such as the femur. You can give less of a dose and give it less often if need be because of renal function. So Beth from Maryland, my home state, go Ravens. Use of Procrit for anemia with renal disease secondary to myeloma. That's an interesting one. That's interesting because I'm actually working on a manuscript from data that we had uh, studied at the Cleveland Clinic in the early 2000s. We don't do it anymore, to answer your question. There are several studies in solid tumors which shows that it can shorten their life expectancy. It causes an increased risk of VTE, venous thromboembolic events. And they have to fill out that ESA appraise form, if those of you who are in the audience are aware of that, to be aware of the increased risk. Basically, if they are symptomatic, chemotherapy-induced anemia will be treated with blood transfusions. Or if they have renal insufficiency, I do give the erythropoietins because of the chronic kidney disease and because they're deficient in EPO. Getting back to the older patient, Melissa, 
One of the things that I think, you know, it's interesting us as an education group kind of working with all these different investigators, you know, breast cancer, all these other different cancers, you kind of over time start to see trends. And Melissa, in terms of treatment of older patients, one of the things that I'm starting to see, Dr. Antonio Palumbo from Italy has been one of the persons who's been writing a lot about the older patient nowadays. And it seems like there's a trend to try to keep patients on longer treatment. You know, try to figure out a way to make the treatment less toxic, but, you know, kind of to try to not just treat them and stop and wait. Am I seeing this correctly? Yes, definitely. I think in myeloma, more and more, we've learned that maintenance is important. So we do want to keep the patients on therapy. But as Beth was pointing out and showing by the case she presented, trying to adjust the doses so that you don't compromise quality of life. But if you can keep the patient on a lower dose, adjusted schedule to keep disease control and you know, allow the patient to have a normal life, then that would be the ideal situation. So again, Dr. Palumbo has started to write a lot and publish a lot about the issue of dose reduction in older people, just preemptively before they even have problems, starting out with a lower dose. I'm going to ask Raphael in a second, do you, if you have a 75, 80, 85-year-old patient, just decrease the doses before you even get started? And let me just ask you, Beth, how did you approach dosing in this 89-year-old man? Let me start with you in terms of what happened with your patient. Absolutely. So back at the time he was diagnosed, the standard of care was using lenalidomide at a dose of 25 milligrams daily for three weeks out of the month. And the dexamethasone was still in pulse fashion, four days on, four days off, high doses. And at the time, there was an ECOG study that Dr. Rajkumar and the Mayo Clinic colleagues had published that lower doses of dexamethasone which is still high, 40 milligrams weekly, the patients over 65 benefited the most. So when we started him on treatment, we took that study into consideration, but because of mood swings and some hyperglycemia, we did promptly go to 20 milligrams weekly with the dexamethasone. Unfortunately, it wasn't as effective as we had hoped. So what about the issue of preemptive dose reduction, Raphael? You know, I think it's just common sense and your clinical judgment. So I don't think there's anything wrong in making those dose reduction. I would say these are just guidelines and suggestions for the clinical practice. So if someone feels like they need to do an adjustment because of diabetes, because of renal function, because of pre-existing problems with, for instance, cytopenias, I think that's perfectly fine. I don't do them just because of age. So I just try to tailor it specifically to the individual. Now, this man has received or is receiving subcutaneous bortezomib, is that correct? Can you talk a little bit about you know, what you said when you started with this and how you approach managing while he was receiving subcutaneous bortezomib? And I also wanna get into the issue of changing the schedule of bortezomib. What happened with this man when you started the sub-Q bortezomib? Well, we started the sub-Q bortezomib a long time ago. We have over 100 patients on the subcutaneous. And basically, peripheral neuropathy is one of the dose-limiting toxicities of bortezomib. But in this study that was published in The Lancet last year by Dr. Moreau and colleagues, it was a non-inferiority study. The incidence of peripheral neuropathy was way reduced in the group that got subcutaneous bortezomib versus IV. I believe it was 53 to 38%. So these are wonderful things to hear. And it didn't show it was exactly inferior. Right. 
Very good. What a guess. Right off the top of your head. Wow. And Dr. Moreau and the Lancet Oncology. Anyhow, the, the point is, is that our patients can safely receive this regimen in subcutaneous form. It's approved in the abdomen and the thigh. And when given there, you have very few injection site reactions. And the published abstract was, I think, what, less than 5%. Ken, is that actually, we're going to talk about subcutaneous trastuzumab this morning. We never got to it, but that's actually out on the table now. And, the, you know, the breast cancer faculty this morning, we were talking about this. They don't really have any experience with that. What's your experience, Kenna, with subcutaneous bortezomib in terms of tolerability, site reactions, neuropathy? Typically, the best way to tell an oncology nurse to give this is give it the way you give a Vidase a shot. You don't prime the needle with the drug. You have a little bit of air in the needle and a little air after you give it. It has markedly diminished the erythema at the injection sites. You use it in the abdomen or the thighs. I don't know about you, but I have a lot more subcutaneous fat there than I do in my arms. <laughs> and I'm sure your patients do too. And you're less likely to hit the same spot twice. You want to do the injections about an inch apart and rotate the sites. And it's very well tolerated. And again, the non-inferiority studies show efficacy given sub-Q. Raphael, this is like a pretty new concept. I think it was the ASH meeting before, so it's a little bit over a year now that we've had this out on the table. You know, it's always interesting to see when new research comes out, are people going to pick up on it? And I know initially when it was first presented at ASH, people were like, whoa, are we going to do this? And it kind of seems like a year or so later we are. Is that the case? I would say, unfortunately, because there was very good PK data to suggest that this could have been done many years ago. And it came out of serendipity, as you know, that ultimately led to that clinical report. Serendipity? Uh, yeah, well, it was the story. No one knows for sure. But the story comes out that it was first administered erroneously subcutaneously really? in France. And that led to the patients that were subsequently treated with a subcutaneous administration. All the pharmacologists suggest it would be just as good. Little did we know it was going to be probably safer. And the idea is that had we done this maybe a few years back, potentially you could envision that you know, patients could self-administer and they don't have to drive. Elderly patients that have to drive one hour and a half, two hours to a treatment center is a big deal. So I'm just very happy that this is happening and we'll take this very first step for now. And in terms of, like say, the cooperative research groups, Melissa, is it getting to a point now where this is being built into ongoing studies or it's left up to the oncologist or are they using an intravenous in the trials? Yeah, I think in practice and for patients that are in the relapse setting where the study was done and in patients that are high risk for neuropathy, I think everyone is really adopting this modality of administration. In clinical trials and in the newly diagnosed setting, it's still not being adopted all the way because this really has not been tested in the newly diagnosed. And even though it seems like Rafael said that, you know, by pharmacokinetics, it should work the same. I think people are a little bit hesitant to just jump into it, you know, in all the patients. In, in ongoing clinical trials, I'm not sure, I don't know, if Rafael, if you know that that has been changed. It, uh, it is a problem because many of the clinical trials still have the IV and they have the 148 and 11, and a lot of the practices are moving to the weekly, practices are moving to subcutaneous. I understand the concerns, and it will be a challenge to compare apples to apples down the exactly, line. Exactly, yeah. What about, Kenna, the issue of giving the bortezomib weekly as opposed to the twice-weekly schedule. We do have some data looking at that, and it kind of seems like maybe the efficacy is the same, but again, maybe less peripheral neuropathy. 
A lot of times when they'll start patients on their regimen, they'll start it out twice weekly. If they have disease control, especially if they're having side effects, they'll dose reduce them very quickly. And again, it's working quite well, and it's going to be uh, balanced with your patients. Side effects and efficacy, and you have to look at the whole patient when you treat them. Hmm. Another question we got here from California, and I think, Beth, you mentioned that you use pomidronate and the question is, we're going to talk about bone-targeted therapy later, but as long as you brought it up and this person is interested in it, pomidronate versus oledronic acid. So this is a big debate, and actually we're going to have a third agent soon. Denosumab is in clinical studies, and many of you are using it in your metastatic breast and prostate cancer patients. So this is my plug for that study. If they can't receive bisphosphonate, so if you have a patient that's newly diagnosed myeloma, please find out where the stenosumab study is so you can get your patients there. But getting back to the thought of how do you decide which, it's really practice-specific, physician-specific. Basically, myeloma can attack the kidney. Raphael had already mentioned that. Based on the mechanism of action of zoledronic acid, it might tickle the kidneys a little bit more. And so I still, for convenience, because it's a faster infusion, will oftentimes give it to my younger patients that have good renal function and have to get to work. But basically, it's practice-specific. Both are good and both are recommended. So we want to shift now to case three. And Kenny, you're a 59-year-old man. And again, every one of these cases, you can spend like two hours on. There's just so many things that happen to these patients. But we want to focus really on the issue that actually was touched on in terms of the question we had about experimental therapies because, you know, it's like we were talking about this morning. We were talking about TDM1 and HER2-positive breast cancer. And, you know, the faculty at Hope Rugo is standing there going, well, you know, we have this patient and the patient was dying. We gave the patient TDM1. They had tried everything else and, you know, they improved. They got better. It's very challenging for us in oncology to know, you know, when is a drug, you know, it's maybe getting ready to be approved, but, you know, maybe it's not approved, but we know it can bring value. And when do we try to get our patient into a trial? And this man, a uh, younger man, you know, 59 years old, I want you to focus on Kenna when he presented to you, I and mean, he was sent to you to be put on a trial. And I want to focus on that moment when he came to you, kind of in the middle of your disease. What had gone on before, and what was he thinking, and what was his doc thinking when they sent him to you? He had been on, at the time, most FDA-approved agents already, and they had exhausted those options for the most part. So his local oncologist referred him to a tertiary center for consideration of a clinical trial. And the point I would like to make with this, with your patients, if you have the opportunity to refer them for a clinical trial, do it more upfront. It's not always a last hope type of thing. Our patients can live with their disease. They can coexist with their disease. It's not quickly deadly, and you need to think about what are you gonna give them one through eight regimens. If you refer them for a clinical trial up front, then it keeps the FDA agents held in your hand like an ace, and you never wanna play your ace before you have to play your ace. If you can put patients on trials throughout their continuum of care, it will benefit them. The Carfizobin clinical trial was a 12-month trial. This bought this gentleman 12 months, and at the end of it, he was a partial remission, and that partial remission did him for quite a while. So patients will be hopped from treatment to treatment. They'll have periods of time where they're disease-free or disease-controlled, so refer them quickly and judiciously for clinical trials. There's a lot of options out there. 
you know, I'm just going to throw out there that sometimes it's not that easy to refer somebody. There might be, you know, all kinds of impediments, geographic impediments, financial impediments. And I think what we want to try to differentiate is when is there something out there that really is going to make a difference? Now, this man, he received, we talked before about bortezomib, the proteasome inhibitor, a new type of proteasome inhibitor, a little bit different, irreversible binding. And he came to you to try that, but he had previously had neuropathy as a result of receiving a proteasome inhibition, specifically bortezomib. What was his neurologic situation when you started the carfilzomib, and what was his state of mind in terms of receiving a drug that the class of which has been associated with this? He was very nervous. He had grade one neuropathy. He had some numbness and tingling, which was ever present. It did not really interfere with function, but it was ever present. And he was very nervous about a same class drug and worrying that it would exacerbate it. In fact, when he went through the trial, it did not exacerbate for him and it stayed at the same level. And so he just had numbness and tingling, no yes. motor problems, no pain. No motor problems. And it stayed that way. And it stayed that way. So Raphael, what do we know about this agent, this type of agent, the irreversible proteasome inhibitor, carfilzomib? What do we know in terms of efficacy and side effects and toxicity, Raphael? Okay, so one, we desperately need it. Number <laughs> two, is as a single agent that has the highest activity of any of the myeloma drugs we have available, 57% in bortezomib-naive. Three, when you look at bortezomib exposed, or in another clinical trial, all three patients are treated with this, the clinical benefit response is about 30%, 30-35%. The importance of that is that includes minimal response. But progression-free survival is the same if you have minimal response versus PR. So that's very, very important. And hopefully we'll be able to use higher doses because preclinical data says that if we can use higher doses, we might be able to overcome protosome inhibitory resistance in some patients. So Melissa, what do we know about peripheral neuropathy and this proteasome inhibitor, carfilzomib? Yeah, it's actually one of the very exciting characteristics of the drugs, and it was that in all the trials that have been done, really there's not a significant risk for peripheral neuropathy. So even though initially when we did the phase one study, you know, we were expecting to see that because it's a proteasome inhibitor, actually it has not been seen. So it's a great tool, even in patients that have significant peripheral neuropathy, like Kenna's patient. So Kenna, can you talk a little bit more about what happened to this man's disease while he was on the trial and his symptoms from the disease? The biggest problem this gentleman had was bone disease. He had a great deal of back pain from his lytic lesions. We treated him with bisphosphonates. We were able to keep him off of narcotics because we were able to control the disease and we were able to treat the bone disease with the bisphosphonates. And that was a big concern for him. That was the biggest thing that affected him while he was on trial. So Raphael, one of the things that we do in oncology research in general is, you know, we often try new drugs in advanced disease, as in this man who'd already gotten all the known kind of conventional treatments, and then start experimenting with bringing in earlier, again, in breast cancer. We were talking about that model this morning, pertuzumab and metastatic disease getting moved up to adjuvant. And now we are starting to see some data with carfilzomib up front, actually kind of like the RVD regimen, but instead of bortezomib, carfilzomib or CRD. Can you talk a little bit about what do we know about that? Very impressive data. This phase 1B2 study presented by Andrew Jakubowiak on behalf of the MMRC 
shows that for patients who complete therapy and receive more cycles, up to 67% of patients go into a complete response category or with qualified near-complete response, which, in fact, is absolutely great. Because then if you think of this as an induction regimen, and then you come with your second punch being the transplant, I think the likelihood that we'll have durable responses post-transplant is going to be even higher. So people are excited, very low risk of the peripheral neuropathy up front, and what appears to be a well-tolerated combination. So if this drug becomes available, and I don't know if you have any speculations about when or if it is, how do you think people are going to use it? I mean, I'm sure it'll maybe depend on the FDA label and reimbursement, et cetera, but theoretically, I mean, could you see using it up front, or do you think we need more data to do that, Raphael? Well, I think people are going to use it up front. Right now, the only challenge is that it's on two days, so it's one, two, you know, eight, nine, and so forth. So it's just going to be a little bit harder because of convenience, but you could easily envision that instead of doing RVD, people could do carfilzomib, Revdex. We actually will be presenting updates at the ASCO meeting with a combination of this plus cyclophosphamide and dexamethasone with very exciting rate of responses and depth of responses, so I can see how this is going to be part of some of the upfront regimens. And I guess, Melissa, also, you know, we're starting to see research on oral proteasome inhibitors. At the ASH meeting in December, we saw some exciting data on an agent that kind of seems similar chemically to bortezomib, but given orally, seemingly very little neuropathy and you know, very good response rates. Any thoughts about where that's heading, Melissa? Yeah, no, that's actually very impressive data. The agent is called MLN9708, and it's a proteasome inhibitor. It's given orally and actually has been tested even twice a week and once a week. Once a week seems to be actually very effective in combination with lenalidomide and dexamethasone. And there's uh, studies published already in the relapse setting and then in the newly diagnosed setting, it was presented in ASH and a response rate, overall response rate 100% and also very high number of very good partial response or complete remissions. And obviously, a very easy to give regimen because it's an all oral regimen. So it's a drug that is still in research, but I, I expect that that will be yet another drug that we'll have available in the near future. So I don't know whether the 33-year-old patient that was referred to in the text message has received carfilzomib, but you know, just kind of looking at the outside, I'm thinking if I'm that patient, I certainly don't want to die without somehow getting it. And the other agent that's out there that you know, kind of seems to maybe fit into that category, Beth, and again, you know, I'm thinking about this morning and these agents in breast cancer coming out that you know, look like they're really going to help people. And, you have a patient who's you know, really not doing well, and how do you get a drug like that to them, a trial? What about pomalidomide? Well, pomalidomide is a third generation. We have the lenalidomide, thalidomide, and pomalidomide is, again, the third generation, and it's an oral drug, and we think the four milligram dose in combination with dexamethasone will be very effective, and it's very well tolerated with side effects of mostly myelosuppression. So again, just like the lenalidomide causing myelosuppression, increased risk of blood clots or venous thromboembolic events, that's where we as nurses are going to be really stepping in and making sure that these risk factors are addressed. You know, the thing, Raphael, that catches my attention about, particularly these two drugs is you see responses, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you see people actually responding who have progressed on the same kind of drug. So somebody might have gotten lenalidomide and they're actually getting worse than lenalidomide. You put them on pomalidomide. Some of these people, in spite of the fact that it's chemically similar, will respond. Same thing with bortezomib. People clearly are getting worse. You put them on carfilzomib. Again, I'm thinking about this 33-year-old patient 
and they get better. Do you agree with that? That's absolutely the case. And the response is there even for patients who are truly refractory to previous agents. I can remember several patients, but one of them that had a two-year durational response with excellent disease control, having been exposed to every single agent before, a very young patient I had in her 30s, who actually did very well for two years, resuming normal life and actually having responsive disease now to the next line of therapy. So indeed, they're far from being just me to drugs. There are drugs that are active and that fill a niche in our toolbox. So I want to also get into some of the supportive care issues in myeloma because they're so critical, particularly things related to bone. And Beth, you picked out this case as someone who had a lot of bone-related problems, complications, interventions. Maybe you can just kind of summarize what happened with this man. So basically, one of the presenting symptoms, and I just wanted to briefly go over our CRAB criteria for diagnosis of myeloma, hypercalcemia, renal insufficiency, anemia, and bone lesions. Again, you need greater than 10% plasma cells in the bone marrow and evidence of this CRAB criteria. My first case didn't have that until later on. He was monoclonal gammopathy for a while. But this gentleman actually felt well. He was a car salesman and had a very good active life, but had to have back pain, didn't get better. Eventually, he had a big lesion. Again, this myeloma cells can eat away in his neck, which had to be emergently fixed with little cages and screws and rods. Before I'm not a go, surgeon, but yeah. Can I, you know, you just, you know, before we could get more into the science, yeah. I always am thinking about, wow, there's this person who been pretty good health, kind of has some back pain, you know, no big deal. And all of a sudden he's going to have his neck operated on. How did he and his loved ones respond to this situation? He says, I should have retired earlier. (laughs) That was the first thing he said to his wife. And that's the challenge is that, you know, how some of our patients can do well for a long time and we think working keeps them active. But that's how he responded. But it takes a lot of us from the nursing side of things to be optimistic. There are treatments for this. The treatments might make you sick sometimes, but keep an open communication with your patients. So this patient also received kyphoplasty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe you can talk a little bit about what that is, Beth, and what happened with this man when he got it. There's two major minimally invasive surgical procedures. Basically, the vertebral body can collapse down and lose height. The needle goes through the pedicles behind the spine to lift up, and kyphoplasty goes through there to lift up and create a cavity. The balloon is deflated, and inside that cavity goes cement. It's called polymethylmethacrylate. And at any rate, it hardens immediately, and patients can experience immediate bone pain relief. Real quick, vertebroplasty is very similar to this, but they don't create a cavity. It's just a thinner cement that fixates, or in, it's like an internal cast for that vertebrae. Melissa, you know, a lot of times we're used to thinking about radiation therapy when we have any kind of cancer involving the bone. What about myeloma and radiation therapy as opposed to these kinds of procedures like kyphoplasty? Yeah, well, I mean, kyphoplasty is very specific for compression fractures that are painful. That is the indication. But in myeloma, actually, it's a disease that is very sensitive to radiation. We are using it less and less because we have more effective therapies. But still, there's a role for radiation to treat localized disease. For example, if a patient presents with a plasmocytoma in the spine that is compressing the spinal cord, that is an oncologic emergency, and that patient needs to be treated with radiation, and you can start, you know, the treatment 
concomitantly. So for plasmocytomas, isolated plasmocytomas, or a patient that has a plasmocytoma in a critical place, then radiation therapy still has a role. Raphael? You know, if I could just expand on what Melissa is saying is that the nursing staff plays a very important role here. Unlike other cancers, we use radiation sparingly. You know, we use the word spot welding when we go about treating those areas in myeloma. And this is quite different for most other cancers. Our patients are unable to get further therapies because they don't have blood counts. And every now and then we see a consult of someone who got whole pelvic radiation or, you know, a very comprehensive spine irradiation, which was probably a good thing locally, not a good thing systemically. And it's really a challenge. So one of the things I always ask as a team, we decide, do we really need to do radiation? Again, it plays a role. One has to be very judicious in myeloma. So I know there's a lot of questions about bone-targeted therapy, and I guess it's been a couple years now that we've been starting to see some data that maybe bone-targeted therapy itself has some kind of survival benefit in this disease, and it's influenced the way people, I think, view using bisphosphonates. Can you comment on that? Sure. I think we as a community became a little bit nonchalant about the management of bisphosphonates because there's this party about those noble agents. But we were just reminded, as you mentioned, a couple of years ago by the MRC9 clinical trial that bisphosphonates do prolong the survival of myeloma patients. The effect is said to be of anti-myeloma effects of the bisphosphonates. I'd say that's probably still controversial. But what was incontrovertible is that the patients were living longer. And it turns out that longer administration of bisphosphonates seems to help patients. I just saw a slide from Dr. Gareth Morgan showing that when they do a landmark analysis and they cut off at two years, you still see separation of the curves and actually pretty clear separation. It's not a wishful thinking. So everyone is scratching their head saying, you know, for how long should we use them? Obviously, there was a concern with osteonecrosis of the mandible. Most of us were saying, as an opinion, maybe two years. But I think that's all being readdressed now. And Kenna, what about the issue of osteonecrosis of the jaw? How do you explain it to patients and what do you do to sort of prevent it? The most important thing is once you get it, you've got it. So prevention is key. We do a panoramic of the jaw before we start any bisphosphonate therapy. Anytime patients are going to have invasive dental procedures, and I don't mean teeth cleaning, I mean something like a root canal or a dental extraction, they need to be off the bisphosphonates before and after that is done and then it can be resumed. We usually do about two months before we resume. So you need to prevent it. And the other thing is, Ask patients, do they have any dental pain? Look in their mouths. I'll never forget a patient came in and she said, well, my mouth hurts because my dentures don't fit well. And I asked her to take her dentures out. And literally she had osteonecrosis of the jaw. She had no idea that she had it. And she was gluing the dentures to the bone on the roof of her mouth. So WNL, we never looked. You always <laughs> need to look. If they complain of it, ask them about it. And you can do this when you're hanging the bisphosphonates in the clinic. Are you having any issues? When is the last time you saw your dentist? Raphael, what about management of osteonecrosis of the jaw once a patient develops it? Are there any surgical interventions that are helpful? Yeah, I think most of the oral surgeons think of it as an avascular necrosis of the mandible. So antibiotics are usually provided. There's some debridement that is done on occasions when there's speculas or there's areas that are painful. But my impression is that they're learning with us, of course, but they tend to be very conservative. I think prevention is key. It is now recognized, I think this is more clear now, that extraction, so the creation of a socket in the bone creates an exposure that leads more likely to osteonecrosis. 
not as much with cavity fillings, root canal, but it's more creating that socket. So in those circumstances, there's some limited data to say that prophylactic antibiotics might actually help. And how has all this new research affected the duration of bisphosphonate use, Beth? We used to have this thing of two years and stop. Is that still the case? In the MRC trial, where they saw this survival benefit, they kept patients going. So there's three guidelines. Remember, guidelines just give you recommendations as to how to manage your patient, but everyone's an individual. International Myeloma Working Group, ASCO, and the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, and each agree about two years, then stop, like Kenneth said. However, years ago, we got so afraid of the osteonecrosis, we stopped him. Now we have the MRC trial that Raphael had mentioned that shows a survival benefit. So now we're back into the giving it monthly, getting the baseline dental exam, educating acute phase reactions. And the third thing that the nurses should do is watch the renal function, checking a creatinine beforehand and a 24-hour urine for albumin about every six months. So again, we use them a lot. They're the best thing since sliced bread, but then now we're gonna go back to them after a period of less. I want to also ask about pain management specifically in myeloma. Ken, and I'm going to ask Beth in a second to talk about what happened with this 77-year-old man. But Kenna, you have a patient who's having a lot of pain, 77 years old. How do you approach and strategize long-term about the use of opiates, Kenna? You need to be very careful. Remember, elderly population are more sensitive to medications, and it's not just opiates. It's a lot of their medications. So you always start small and work your way up to best pain relief. You need to keep their age in mind. You need to keep their co-concommitment drugs in mind and adjust very individually for these patients. A lot of times you control the disease, and that controls the pain, and you can back the patients off of their pain medications. So what actually happened with this man in terms of pain control? How did you approach it? Yeah, so he had major surgery on his neck to stabilize the spine, and then about a month later, he had the balloon kyphoplasty procedure for the collapsed vertebral bodies. So he was requiring high doses of OxyContin and breakthrough oxycodone to manage his pain. We used the World Health Organization stepladder, and Tylenol wasn't cutting it for this type of bone pain. And we avoid, and since, like Raphael had mentioned, in myeloma, they're bad. Fortunately, from treating the disease, and treating the myeloma with the damage, the kyphoplasty, he is off OxyContin. It made him sleepy, and he didn't want to be sleepy. So he'll take an occasional Percocet. But one of the things I'd like to emphasize that he felt really was beneficial is water therapy. Getting your patients moving around decreases pneumonia, decreases the risk for blood clots, and it actually makes you feel better. So he thinks that one of the biggest successes was his being so active. So what do you actually instruct a patient mm -hmm. to do in terms of, quote, water therapy? I have them get a noodle. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. So actually, I, I give them a prescription for evaluate and treat. We have wonderful area. In, I live in Cleveland, Ohio, and it's cold there. So when I tell them in the middle of winter that they have to do water exercises, they look at me like I have two heads. But we have warm water therapy. So they learn exercises from the water therapist. And a lot of people will do that. They'll get a little kickboard, and they'll kick their legs. They'll dangle on the wet noodle, and they'll do their exercises. And it really helps get them out and socializing and keeps them healthy as well. So Kenna, you know, sometimes I think, you know, we've been maybe over, you know, medicated, over scientized medicine and oncology. And I love, you know, to hear these sort of recommendations and ideas that are more sort of complementary in nature. Anything that you've observed like that in general that helps your patients? It all comes back to the original literature activity. 
the hazards of immobility. You don't use it, you lose it. And you need to keep your patients moving. I had a patient that complained of a lot of fatigue and a lot of pain. Well, what are you doing? And he was getting up, eating, and watching television. That's all he did all day. You incorporate just regular exercise, very simple stuff into your normal daily activity, and it's very helpful. It helps with your pain. It keeps you away from risk for DVTs. It helps your bowel patterns because you have mobility. It's, it's keep moving. <laughs> so can I, they turn around and go, well, hey, you know, I've got myeloma in my bones. You show me all these x-rays. I'm afraid to do things. I'm afraid I'm going to break something. Common sense is amazing. I did have one patient that she decided she would do her bucket list and she parachuted, piggyback parachuted. And she didn't want the nurse to tell me that she did that. And I said, well, I'm glad you got it out of your system, but please don't do it again. <laughs> and I, you know, you tend to be facetious. And I said, there will be no bungee jumping for you, but just regular exercise. And you need to be careful and you need to be judicious with your activity, but you need to have activity. So another text question, Melissa, what about the use of treatment in patients with premyeloma, which, you know, I guess maybe you can explain sort of what MGUS is. And I think your patient, too, went from MGUS, right? My Beth, patient. Into myeloma. But maybe you can explain a little bit about what MGUS is and whether or not we treat it. Yeah, so MGUS, it means monoclonal gammopathy of uncertain significance, and before it was considered like a pre-malignant condition, is when patients have a monoclonal protein in the blood or in the urine, but they do not have increased plasma cells in the bone marrow, and obviously they don't have any of the systemic characteristics of myeloma, like the CRAB criteria that Beth was mentioning before. So you only see that protein, but you're not able to see actually that there's increased plasma cells in the bone marrow. They should be less than 10%. And those patients, we follow because about 25% of those patients will go on to develop myeloma in their lifetime. So those patients usually we see them once a year and we follow all their labs and if nothing is changing then we actually do not treat them. So I do want to close in a minute but I want to give the faculty, I'm going to start with you Beth, a chance to reflect on common questions that you get from oncology nurses, from patients, reasons patients get referred in that we haven't talked about. One of the biggest questions I get asked is the bisphosphonates, which we already addressed, the duration of bisphosphonates, and also how can I protect my patient from getting sick? Infections are the number one cause of death, actually, of myeloma patients, and 73% will have this IgG type, and IgG is a molecule that protects us from getting sick. So I really tell them to watch people with coughs and colds. As Dr. Alcina had mentioned, herpes zoster prophylaxis, and with vaccinations. If it's live, don't take it. Dead viruses are fine. They should not take the live viruses. So, Kenna? The biggest thing that I want you to take away from this is this is not a quickly deadly disease anymore. It's debatable whether it's a cure. I would tend to say that there's not at this point. But patients can live with this disease. <laughs> We're winning. <laughs> However, come, I have two patients that are seven years out after one, one treatment. I have so, one 30 years yeah. out. Yeah. So. We, so, so we can go both ways. Mm -hmm. But patients can live with this disease, and they're going to live with this disease with your help because you're going to screen them for the side effects that they're suffering or enduring because of the therapies, and we can dose-reduce the therapies, and we can 
give them a quality of life, but still treat their disease. We don't necessarily have to beat it over the head with a club. You can coexist with this disease. It's quality of life and disease control, and that's what I want you to understand, and that's what I want you to emphasize with your patients when you see them. So, Melissa, any thoughts in terms of questions that you get from nurses, from oncologists, from patients? Yeah, I think the most common question that we get, you know, is how to dose adjust the medication, how long duration of therapy, the question on bisphosphonates, and I think what is your best treatment for this newly diagnosed myeloma? And that actually is a challenge for oncologists in the community, for nurses, but also for us that, you know, we only see myeloma patients. So I think what I want to say is that even though the fact that we've done major advances is very exciting, but it's also very challenging. And a lot of times we don't know exactly which direction to go. So I think that we still need to try to get every patient in clinical trial that we can and to try to continue to move the field forward. So I'll give the last word to Raphael. Again, any questions that you get from patients and physicians? So I get the last word, huh? Yeah. <laughs> this time. Until you get home. Until you get home. <laughs> Good one. So, so I, th I think the main thing is myeloma, it's at least 50% integrated and supportive care with a whole team. And that cannot be overemphasized. We talked extensively about symptom management. I don't feel like we even could cover all of it, but it's really important to recognize this as one of the key aspects of a successful clinical practice that manages myeloma patients. And since I have the last word, I'm just going to put in a plug-in for Beth and Kenna. I think they're outstanding examples of what the nursing community has done in the care for myeloma patients. And responding to your previous question, Neil, I think we have made so much progress because of the team attitude that has come together for this, but academic centers, industry, nursing, NIH, everyone working together, the patient support organizations has made a huge difference. They themselves, you've heard about papers. My nurse in my own practice, J.C. Spong, is phenomenal. She's an expert in myeloma. They work together, they attend symposiums, and they have helped advance the agenda of research and knowledge generation when it comes to myeloma. So I'm sure I would just love to encourage anyone else who's interested in your own particular areas to, if you haven't done so, I'm sure many of you have, to follow the similar path that you've seen in Beth and Kenna. This concludes our program. Special thanks to our faculty, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for this special highlights program from a satellite meeting on multiple myeloma at the annual Oncology Nursing Society Congress.